This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 168. Greetings, Metamorphs. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I am Chris Lester, your guide into worlds of fantasy and wonder. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorphcity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you and keep you up to date on my life and my writing. So let's get started. Here is this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 26 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Rookie homicide detective Michael Pirelli has been walking a fine line lately. There's been a rash of apparent vampire attacks around the city. Victims were found in abandoned sections of the street their bodies drained of blood. Michael inspected one of these bodies and noticed that something seemed off about the crime scene, but he was prevented from investigating further by his senior partner, Detective Bentley, and his supervisor, Sergeant Hawkins. Michael was ordered to refer the case to the Lightbringers, since dealing with vampire attacks is their responsibility. In its place, Hawkins gave Michael a set of easy cases that wouldn't require much detective work but there was more to these attacks than there first appeared. Vampire medical examiner Morgan Drowling examined the body that Michael had found and discovered that the vampire bites had been faked. The victim's blood had actually been drained from an artery in the leg. Several other bodies turned up with the same pattern, confirming Morgan's fears. Someone is committing serial kidnapping and murder and trying to pin the blame on the vampires. Even worse, a subsequent examination by wizard Catherine Catane found that the bodies had been used in some kind of black magic ritual. At Morgan's request, Michael dug into the archives at Homicide, uncovering many other victims who had been killed in the same manner. He passed these files to Morgan, who compiled the report for the Special Investigations Division, which handles missing persons and other high-profile cases. Now the matter is out of Michael's hands, and he waits anxiously to learn what SID will uncover. Meanwhile, police psychologist Jared Tamlin finds himself in serious trouble. Until this morning, he was in charge of Lieutenant Katane's therapy. Two months ago, she shot a vampire's thrall in the line of duty, and she hasn't been handling it well. Jared has kept her off of active duty until she's willing to deal with her issues honestly, but Kate went over Jared's head and got herself reassigned to SID. The SID staff psychologist immediately cleared her for duty, which strikes Jared as malpractice. If Kate gets caught in another firefight, she's going to get herself killed. Jared filed a formal protest with his director through inter-office mail, then went to make his case in person to the head of SID, Captain Rowan Shaw. Unfortunately, Captain Shaw wouldn't listen, and when Jared called his director to talk about the case, he discovered that she had never received his letter. Jared printed up another copy, 
gathered all of his records on Katane, and headed for the director's office, intent on delivering them in person. But before he could even leave the parking lot, he was accosted by a plainclothes police officer, who asked to speak to him in private. Once they were inside Jared's skimmer, the man put a sedative patch on Jared's hand, which quickly rendered him unconscious. Jared's last memory was of the plainclothes officer and his companions picking him up and stuffing him in the trunk of his own vehicle. The Lost and the Least A Novel of Metamore City Written in Red by Chris Lester Chapter 26 Most of the workday passed without incident for Michael. He continued his work on the cases Sergeant Hawkins had assigned him, which consisted mostly of writing reports and taking statements from a few witnesses. He kept his head down, did what he'd been told, and spoke as little as possible to anyone. The entire station house was a buzz about Detective Katane, of course. It was always a big deal when an officer got promoted from one of the local precinct houses to SID, but the circumstances surrounding Kate's transfer made it even more extraordinary. In the space of two months, she had been deputized by the Ministry of Intelligence, awarded an imperial commendation, investigated by internal affairs, suspended for killing a syndicate thrall, and now elevated to the most elite squad on the force. The rumor mill ran rampant, speculating on what had happened to Cade under the Citadel, where her partner Silverleaf had disappeared to, and what strings Kate might have pulled to end her suspension early. Some wondered aloud if the Minister of Intelligence, or even the Majestrix herself, had put pressure on the brass to let Kate return to active duty. All such gossip fell silent whenever Captain Montgomery entered the room. He stomped around the office in a black cloud, snarling at officers to shut up and get back to work. Michael had no idea if the captain knew about the files he had provided to Morgan, who had in turn provided them to Kate. Morgan wasn't under the captain's supervision. Forensic investigation had its own chain of command— and Morgan was well within her authority as medical examiner both to request the files and to pass them on to SID. But Montgomery probably wouldn't like that they were going behind the backs of Sergeant Hawkins and Lieutenant Richards. His response to Kate's transfer told Michael clearly what the Cap thought about bending the rules. It was almost quitting time when Michael felt a shadow looming over him. He turned and looked up at the massive form of Sergeant Hawkins. The beaver morph grinned at Michael and somehow made it look menacing. Mr. Borelli, he purred, how's it going with those cases I gave you? Not bad, Sarge. Michael glanced over at the stack of files on his desk. I should be done with them by lunch tomorrow. Good, good. You keeping busy then? No need for any side projects? Michael got a sinking feeling in his stomach, but he kept his expression placid. Why, do you have something you need help with? Oh, you've helped enough. Hawkins took a step into Michael's personal space in the already cramped cubicle. I just got a call from Special Investigations. 
Seems they got some homicide files from our precinct, and they'd like to ask us some questions about them. Imagine my surprise when I don't know what the fuck they're talking about. Michael felt a lump forming in his throat, but he kept his composure and sat up straight. It was after hours, he said evenly. Dr. Drowling needed help from homicide. I was here, Sarge. You weren't. I don't see why I should apologize for helping another officer. Hawkins' eyes narrowed. He leaned in close to Michael's ear, and his voice fell to a low rumble. That officer was two steps away from Malcolm Ardvalos himself for months, and none of us knew shit about it, he growled. Oh, she says she's free, sure. But free to do what, exactly? The captain trusts her, Michael said. Hawkins snorted. The captain trusted Katane, too, and she screwed him over. He turned his head slightly, locking one eye directly on Michael's. This section doesn't send one piece of paper to Drowling unless it goes through me or the LT first. If you ain't noticed, there's a leak in this precinct. The vamps find out about things they shouldn't. Maybe it's Drowling or maybe it ain't, but we're not taking any chances. You get me? Slowly, Michael nodded. Hawkins straightened up, put his hands on his sizable hips and arched his back, grunting softly. Stick to the work we give you, Junior. Things ain't as simple around here as you think they are. Aye, Sarge, Michael said quietly. Hawkins lumbered off, turning his attention to one of the other officers under his supervision. Michael sat staring into nothing, lost in thought. He didn't believe Morgan was a spy for the syndicate. He didn't know her that well, certainly not as well as Kate did, but her heart seemed to be in the right place even if her methods were sometimes unconventional. He remembered his first day on the job, when she'd hypnotized him with her domination gaze within seconds of meeting him. There had been an important lesson behind it. Life in Metamore City was dangerous. A cop couldn't afford to be caught off guard, not with creatures like vampires and daedra and telepaths running around. Better for Michael to learn that lesson in a safe environment, where Morgan would do nothing worse than tease him a little, than for him to find out the hard way on the street. But Hawkins wasn't wrong when he said there was a leak in the precinct, either. Too many cases against syndicate operatives had unraveled at the last minute. Too many vampires disappeared from their usual haunts just hours before a raid. Just a few weeks ago, Kate and her partner had been led into a syndicate trap and nearly killed because a uniformed officer had turned out to be a vampire's thrall. Michael didn't believe in luck that bad. The syndicate had to have someone on the inside. And whoever it is, he thought, they're taking full advantage of the fact that people don't trust Morgan. Michael locked his computer and went to the bathroom. In the privacy of his stall, he took out his phone and sent an instant message to Morgan. Any news on those DBs? Sarge is shutting me out. A response came back moments later. SID has my report. Investigation in progress. Another body just turned up in Precinct 1. Michael frowned. Precinct 1 was in Solshore, on the northwest edge of the city. Who's handling the crime scene? There was a longer pause as Morgan composed her response. I'd like it to be me, of course, but if we wait until nightfall, the evidence may degrade. I'm sending Lisa and Pamela. 
I'd like you there, too, if you can get away. You know what to look for. Michael only hesitated for a moment. Okay, what's the address? 894 Harbor Street, near Pier 29, Morgan replied. Come down here before you go. I'll give you a coroner's uniform. Will do. Thanks, Michael sent. He paused, then added, Watch your back. Sarge thinks you're passing info to the syndicate. They might be watching you for anything suspicious. No reply came for more than a minute. Michael wondered what Morgan was thinking. At last, a new message popped up. I wish I could say I was surprised. I have more important things to worry about. Thank you for the warning. More important than being treated as a suspected traitor? The Doe murders must really be weighing on her. Michael put his phone back in his pocket, went back to his desk, and clocked out. He didn't say goodbye to anyone as he left the office. Michael didn't know how much help he would actually be at the crime scene. He knew he had a gift for homicide work, but Morgan's people were solid, and they'd been at this longer than he had. He wondered if Morgan was just keeping him in the loop as a sort of thank you, a gesture of respect. If that was all it was, he would still take it. It felt good to be doing something important, something that mattered. Now let's just hope it doesn't get me fired. Jared woke to darkness and the nearby sound of flowing water. The air was cool and humid and reeked of mildew. Something small and mini-legged crawled across his cheek, startling him back to full awareness. He brushed it off with a gasp, then slowly sat up, taking stock of what his senses were telling him. The floor was rough-cut stone, and his muscles ached as he straightened his back and stretched. I must have been lying here for hours, he thought. His head throbbed like a bad hangover. He rubbed at his temples and tried to remember what had happened to him. An image flitted up from the depths of his abused brain. The plainclothes cops slapping the drug patch on his hand, then throwing him in the back of his own skimmer. He reached down and felt the back of his hand. The patch was still there, now peeling at the edges. He carefully peeled it loose and tossed it into the empty space in front of him. I need light. He reached for the pocket where he kept his mobile phone, but it was gone. His wallet, keys, and multi-tool had all been taken as well. Great, he muttered. Just great. He heard a rustling sound from somewhere nearby. A moment later, a ragged male voice hissed. Boy, you awake now? The voice sounded like it was close, but also muffled, as though there were some obstruction in the way. I'm awake, Jared hissed back. I can't see. What happened? Where am I? There's nothing to see with, son, the man said. He sounded frustrated, not with Jared, but with their situation. They bring the light when they come, and they take it away when they go. I don't know where we are. Somewhere near the underground river, maybe. It doesn't have the right smell for the sewers. Jared winced. The smell's bad enough as it is. Who are they? What do they want? Don't know that either, the man drawled. But they came after me when I started getting too nosy about the whites. Jared felt his way on hands and knees toward the source of the voice. He found a stone wall 
and a hole near the floor about a decimeter wide. Jared put his mouth down closer to the hole. Hey, are you over there? I am, the man said, his voice now much clearer. He spoke in a rich, deep bass that reminded Jared of his Arampian father-in-law. I'm Jared. What's your name? Silas, the man said. I wish I could say it was a pleasure, Jared, but under the circumstances. Right. Jared lay down on his belly with his face toward the hole. What are the whites? A new organized crime outfit, Silas said. One that wants to destroy the Reds, apparently. I've been tracking them for months now. Jared was amazed. In the years since Malcolm's syndicate had targeted him, since they'd killed Catherine, his wife, Jared had watched the vampires slowly swallow up all their rivals in the Metamore City underworld. He'd never dreamed he'd see the day when someone gave Malcolm a taste of his own medicine. He imagined the look on that smug bastard's face when someone finally tore his kingdom out from under him. On the other hand, these whites are apparently the reason you're stuck in an underground cell, he thought. Don't cheer too loudly, Jared. What about you, son? You been poking into anything lately that you oughtn't to? Jared thought back to his encounter in the parking garage. It's nothing personal, the cop said. Which means it was... what? Business? The syndicate hadn't made another attempt at suborning Jared since Catherine died. But what if this new group had decided he was getting in the way of their plans? What if something about his work as a police psychologist was stopping them from... His thoughts skidded to a halt as he remembered his conversation with Director Sakura. I'm a psychologist for MCPD, he told Silas. There was a detective I was in charge of evaluating. Her new captain wanted her back on duty. I disagreed, but they found a way to bypass me. I sent a letter to my director in protest, but the letter was lost in the mail. I was on my way to talk to her in person. Silas grunted. Dirty cops protect their own. Always have, always will. That's the thing, though, Jared said. She's not a dirty cop. She's a... a good cop who had to do a hard thing, that's all. That has to be all. If she's dirty and I couldn't tell. Then someone thinks they can turn her, Silas said. Or use her. Nobody starts out dirty, Jared. It's something you slide into, a little at a time. Until you don't remember who you were anymore. Jared chewed on that for a while in silence. If these whites have people inside the police, it could be trouble. The Reds already have people inside the police, Silas said. It surely is trouble. Again, Jared was amazed. Who are you? How do you know all this? Silas chuckled once. I was the man in the middle, knowing things was my job. He paused, just for a second or two. I don't know what I am now. Probably not long for the world, to tell the truth. The matter-of-fact way he said it gave Jared chills. What have they done to you? Mostly they've left me here in the dark, Silas said. They come sometimes, feed me a little, give me water, ask questions. Sometimes they threaten me. The last time they chained me up took some of my blood. Again, the same casual tone, 
Jared felt sick. What did they want the blood for? Hells if I know, Silas sighed. They didn't take much, probably for some kind of magic. The thought did nothing to reassure Jared. We've got to find a way out of here, Jared said. Silas made the same dry chuckle. <laughs> Soon as you figure out how, you let me know, son. Jared carefully rose to his feet and started exploring his surroundings, his hands stretched out in front of him. The wall on Silas's side was about three meters long and two and a half meters high. On the left side was another wall. This one was only about two meters long and had a tall, empty bucket with a lid in the far corner. Since there was no sign of plumbing in the room, the bucket's intended purpose was obvious. The wall opposite Silas's wall seemed to have roughly the same dimensions, though there was no hole on this side, as far as he could tell. The last side of the room was closed off with a sturdy, modern metal grating, like the kind used to secure the rare books section in a bookstore. This probably wasn't intended to be used as a prison cell, but it certainly seemed strong enough for the job. Jared found the door. There was a keyhole, but no handle. He tried shaking the door back and forth, but it held securely without any rattling. That was everything, as far as he could tell. After completing his circuit of the perimeter, he combed his way through the empty space in the middle of the room, feeling his way forward with short, shuffling steps. He tried to move in straight lines parallel to the walls, but in complete darkness that was harder than he would have thought. He kept running into walls at odd angles, and sooner than he expected them. When he felt the corners of the room, though, they seemed square, so apparently it was just bad navigation on his part and not a trick of the architecture. Eventually, he returned to Silas's wall and sat down next to the hole. A light snoring now came from the other side. Jared decided to let the man sleep. He had no idea how long he sat there. He couldn't remember the last time he'd sat alone with nothing to do, and especially not in a place with such profound sensory deprivation. Phantom colors swirled and danced in front of his eyes, like fairy lights. The endless rush of water made a white noise that was almost hypnotic. He was surprised that he didn't feel more afraid. He'd been drugged, kidnapped, thrown in a darkened cell without food or water. His only companion had been bled for unknown purposes. A person might panic in these circumstances, might scream and cry and curl up in a ball on the floor. No one would think less of him for it. Jared was afraid, but he wasn't that afraid. He could still think clearly. Hells, he could think about his own thinking. Perhaps he just didn't have enough information yet. Or maybe nothing has really frightened me since Catherine died. If so, what did that say about him? That he had nothing left to lose? That part of him was ready to join her in the realms beyond? Physician, heal thyself. An unknown time later, the gradual appearance of light stirred him from his trance. At first he thought it might be a hallucination, or a dream, but then he heard the clear sounds of footsteps on stone. The light slowly grew in the corridor beyond the cage, and bobbed slightly in time with the footsteps. Finally, four figures stepped into view and approached the door to the cage. 
They all wore black cloaks and hoods that obscured their forms and faces, a fact exacerbated by the light beam one of them shone directly at Jared. He wasn't sure, but he thought the figure might have been using the Torch app on a smartphone. He could not tell what species or ethnicity they were, nor even their genders, though the one in front revealed himself as male when he spoke. Jared Tamlin, he said in a bland, tenor voice, you're coming with us. Jared rose warily to his feet. None of the figures looked especially tall or muscle-bound, but neither was Jared, and he was outnumbered four to one. Do you intend to hurt me? he asked. Only if we have to, the man said. Are you going to cooperate? Jared looked between the mysterious, hooded figures. All of them stood with unnerving stillness, waiting. They could be hiding anything under those cloaks. Guns, wands, stunners, more drugs. None of them were being overtly threatening, but they didn't have to be. You're never going to get out of here if you stay in this cell, he told himself. All right, he said. I'll cooperate. For now? The lead figure nodded. He produced a key from his robes and unlocked the door, swinging it outward. The others parted to either side of the corridor, then waited. Taking a deep breath, Jared stepped forward and let himself be led down the long, dark tunnel. And that's the end of Chapter 26. Come back next time, when Jared finally gets some answers, and Kate has another encounter with a certain skunk morph. Stan Lee said, You know, my motto is Excelsior. That's an old word that means upward and onward to greater glory. It's on the seal of the state of New York. Keep moving forward, and if it's time to go, it's time. Nothing lasts forever. Stan the Man left us this week, at the age of 95. He leaves behind an amazing legacy of vibrant, colorful, and deeply human characters. They inspire us today, and they will continue to do so long after he is gone. I can only hope that my own creations will inspire a fraction of the same wonder and imagination from my readers. So let's move forward, upward, and onward together. Here's the weekly writing report. I wrote 4,473 words this week, over the course of seven hours, for an average writing speed of 639 words per hour. As of Friday night, I've gone 42 days without breaking my chain. Homecoming continues to capture my imagination and drive me on toward higher word counts. This is such a different story from anything I've done before, and even though I feel like I know Kate and John really well at this point, the unusual circumstances I've placed them in are helping me to learn new and exciting things about both of them. I'm now nearly finished with Chapter 7, and the story is over 17,500 words. And now, the feedback. Hey, Curtis. Your scene in the morgue with Morgan and Patricia was brilliant. I haven't laughed that hard in a very long time. 
once I calmed down and reround the parts I missed from my laughter, I noticed Morgan averting her eyes from, I guess it was the yew tree, the crucifix type of necklace. I've always wondered what would happen if she directly gave at the crucifix yew tree symbol. But that was a brilliant scene. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Hi, Stephen. We got an answer to this question back in Chapter 16 of Things Unseen, when Morgan and Misty went to Baron Kapler to pressure him into releasing Julie Matthias. Kapler knew that he was meeting with a vampire, and he didn't want Morgan using her domination gaze on him, so he came prepared. I'll quote from the chapter here. Morgan raised her eyes to meet his, and was struck with a flash of vertigo that left her reeling. She flinched away looking down at the table as the wave of disorientation passed, leaving a throbbing headache behind. Morgan growled in her throat, then reasserted her will and pushed back her instincts. The guard standing directly behind Kapler stood up a little straighter, and Morgan caught a whiff of smug satisfaction as he adjusted the yew-tree crucifix around his neck. Clever. So that's what happens. The divine power that resurrected Yahshua is strongly tied to the cosmic forces of light, life, and creation. When she made the first vampire, Mother Lilith drew on the opposite source of power, forces of darkness, undeath, and destruction. That means that there is an inherent dissonance between the light of Eli and the magic that sustains Morgan in her undead condition. If she has any contact with the holy symbols of Eli— or some of the other creation-aligned deities, like Akala and Artela, the power of those deities pushes back on the core of darkness inside her. They remind her body that it is supposed to die, to decay, to rejoin the cycle of nature, and they remind her spirit that it belongs in the realms beyond. This disrupts the delicate hold that Lilith's magic has on her, causing pain and confusion. Great question, and I'm glad you enjoyed the scene. Also, I should mention here that the woman Morgan was speaking to was Pamela Nightshade, and she is a creation of Nobilis Reed. If you want to read a fun adventure from Pamela's point of view, check out Nobilis's story Alive, which you can find in his Quicksilver Bridges anthology. I'll have a link in the show notes. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. 
For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.